Chapter 63 No sooner had Stella entered the storage room opposite the staff room in Daffodil Corridor than the sight of the large green plastic draped art table brought her up short. The last time she'd been under that table with her fistful of papers that included Theo's doctor's report, Stella had not been alone. What if Cassandra was under there now? Stella was not ready to face Cassandra. The fact of her. A real woman, an imagined one, or something else. What? Stella had never believed in ghosts and was unwilling to begin at 82. But she most definitely didn't want to look under the table. Still, what if Reliza couldn't convince the doctor that being downstairs was best for Theo? And even if she was able to, what if Dr. Terry himself was unconvincing? Stella needed something more to bring to the argument with Mrs. Perdetta Warren. She thought that something more would be found among the accountancy sheets, bills, and menus Stella had taken, snatched, stolen from the director's desk. There's something wrong with the way Mrs. Warren is running Fairmount Manor. Reliza had been quoting the doctor. Stella was sure that Dr. Terry was right, and if so, she must get at those papers. This sort of paperwork told the story of management, reports, menus, rotas. But to get them, she would have to lift the green plastic tablecloth that made the space under the storage room art table into such a private tent. It was a good place to hide stolen papers and an excellent place to hide. She couldn't go under. Not if Cassandra might possibly be there. But neither could she leave. She stood on the linoleum halfway between the door and the table, her breathing loud in the room. She studied the corner of the plastic tablecloth nearest her. Had it moved? She was sure it had moved. But there were people in the corridor outside the room. She heard Cheryl's quick, rubberized footsteps, among others. The movement of air from outside must have stirred the tablecloth. And time was running out for Theo. She must reach the warden in time to help Dr. Terry change what was to come. As she approached the table, her feet in their lace-up shoes made soft little sounds on the linoleum like the sound a tongue makes. Tis, tis. A teacher's sound, a mother's. At the thought, Stella's heart grew braver. Putting a hand on the tablecloth, careful not to let it slip, she stooped slowly and reached under the cloth, feeling blindly for the papers. She would not think what she would do if she touched a bony toe, or if there was a sudden shout and lunge outwards from underneath that would be so like Cassandra. But she touched only the hard edges of the little stack of magazines. Nobody lunged. She made herself stoop a little lower and reach further. Her hand found the papers, or the papers found her hand. 
Whichever it was, she withdrew them. Hands steady now, she rifled through the pages. Was it all there? How to know? She registered spreadsheets, menus, and doctor's reports. Satisfied, she turned to leave the storage room, but she paused at the door. It was hard to know what to say, really. She didn't want to offer another phony thanks, as she had done with Ollie. So she just said the first words that came to her. I miss you, Cassandra. She said it, and she meant it. But she didn't turn around. Chapter 64 And after all that, she was late. She had had to stop at the empty receptionist's desk while she took a few moments, moments she could hardly afford, to put the papers into some kind of order with the menus on top. She didn't so much mind missing Dr. Terry's opening argument, but she was terrified of finding the door locked against her, of shifting from foot to foot her fists full of papers awaiting her turn, then to face the warden alone. But the doctor, or the director, had left her office door open, so Stella barged right in. The director and the doctor were facing each other across a big, untidy desk. The doctor had been speaking, but he nodded at Stella as she entered. Please wait outside, Mrs. Ryman, the warden said. She turned calmly back to the doctor. The board has been very clear about their wishes. Stella decided to ignore the warden's wishes. She approached the desk, listening hard to Dr. Terry. Wandering gives Theo greater independence, resulting in increased synaptic firing. As well, I can track a significant reduction in resting heart rate due to the aerobic movement, the doctor was saying. His tone was forceful, so forceful indeed that Stella feared he was losing the argument. Mr. Longborn's safety is my first concern, the doctor said. You can change the front door passcode if you don't want Theo wandering outside, Mrs. Warren scowled. Her calm gone, she held up a piece of paper in each hand. This is the letter from the driver that hit him, and this is a letter from Theo's family. Her tone grew sharper still. And I have had calls from the hospital who treated him, and from the board members of Fairmount Manor whom the hospital called. In case you've forgotten it, the board members are my bosses. They have charged me to keep him safe. Dr. Terry frowned, but said nothing. Mrs. Perdita Warren appeared to recover her center. She said, Do you remember, Mrs. Ryman, the talk we had about our responsibility, our privilege, to keep our residents safe? Stella said, There are worse things that can happen to a person than an injured leg. I'm not sure that's true, the director said. But even so, it's my decision, and I must side with the board. Stella heard a pattering sound, and she realized that her hands were shaking, so that the papers she held rattled. She tried to still them, but couldn't manage it. Fury had overtaken her, and fury would have its say. I've known principles like you, Stella said fiercely. They had good hearts inside, but they wore hard hearts outside, as an afterthought, she added. 
I never went to their year-end staff barbecues. The director and the doctor exchanged a look, and Stella felt her ears turn pink. Well, that was a bit of a disaster, she told herself. But she still had the papers. She was about to present them when Dr. Terry spoke. Is the board medically qualified to make this decision? Dr. Terry hurried on to answer his own question. No, not one member among them has an MD. What do they know of Theo Longborn's case? They are your bosses too, Mrs. Warren said. Dr. Terry gave her a long, withering look. You know perfectly well I don't work for the board or for you. I work out of the clinic up Dunbar Street. Individual patients call me and they call me because I'm willing and care enough to come out to see them when they can't get to the clinic. I'm here because I make house calls, a dying tradition among general practitioners. You gave me a little cubbyhole of an office because I'm here so often and I repeat, you know that. Have you completely lost the plot? How strange. Even I know the doctor is called into Fairmount. He's not a member of the staff, Stella thought. With wonder, she watched the warden's face change as she took in the doctor's words. In the space of a few seconds, the director's handsome and confident manner, no, her officious bravuro, Stella corrected herself, gave way to confusion and then distress. It was like watching a great unexpected natural calamity, as if a mountain was crumbled to dust, or the Pacific Ocean drained away, leaving the fishes to flap helplessly among the algae. There had been a shift in power here. A few moments earlier, Theo had been the clear and obvious underdog in the struggle. Now, as the warden, Mrs. Warren, sat down suddenly and buried her face in her hands, Stella wondered whether that was still true. For now, the doctor was standing, looming over Mrs. Warren, awaiting an answer. And Stella found herself committing an unexpected act, an act of aggression that she had not designed, but which nonetheless she carried out. She rose to her feet and stood beside the doctor. From that vantage, she found she could look down on the woman the director's head was bent in obvious distress, but Stella felt no particular pity for the woman. After all the hard-hearted refusals, misunderstandings, and humiliating misjudgments she had suffered at this woman's hands, she could not find it in herself to sympathize. See how it feels, Madam Warden, she wanted to say. You've made an error and you're being made to pay in a manner that far outweighs your mistake. You feel diminished, don't you? You feel small. You don't know it, but you feel old. Stella moved a little so that her shadow fell across the warden's face. Hands wrapped around the warden's papers, she rocked a little on the heels of her lace-up shoes. The papers slipped in her fingers, and she brought the bundle down tightly in front of her. He would not do at all, at such a moment, to drop them. Mrs. Warren raised her head. Her forehead was pleated, and her eyes begged for... what? Understanding? Looking first at Stella, and then at the doctor, she said, I really don't know how I could have come to be so forgetful about 
staffing forgetful. Dr. Terry's tone was cold as February. You're in charge here, and anybody would think that you hadn't the slightest handle on how this place runs. As Mrs. Warren's face creased further with distress and unhappiness, Stella stood taller, towering over the woman, schooling her face into a condescending, judgmental expression that she had never used, not once, in her entire teaching career. It came quite easily to her, however. Then, because she was looking down, she happened to catch sight of Mrs. Warren's mismatched shoes, one blue and one black. There was something going on in this woman's life that Stella did not understand. And she did not want to. Because she was going to take these papers, slam them down on the desk in front of the director, and demand an explanation for the accounting inaccuracies. But in the quiet, standing at the doctor's side, Stella heard a familiar voice. Stella! The voice came from within her. At first she thought it must be Tannis Marie Seton weighing in from the far side of the grave with her opinion of Stella's behavior. Stella Ryman! But it was not her mother. She knew that voice quite well, however. There was no getting around it. It was her own voice that spoke with such emphasis and certainty. It said, I have a question for you, Stella Ryman. Think well, for much rests on your answer. My question is, are you planning to become a thoroughly poisonous, bullying old woman? Use the papers cruelly and save Theo, or don't use them and simply hope that the doctor wins the day? There couldn't be a third option, could there? Stella bit her lip, and then she forced herself to laugh. Both Dr. Terry and Mrs. Warren looked at her. The doctor was frowning, and the director was blinking back tears. Hurriedly, Stella said, I was just laughing at your joke, Mrs. Warren. Joke? Dr. Terry asked. Or rather, Stella added hastily, not a joke but a metaphor. What the director means when she says that you are a part of Fairmont Manor, Dr. Terry, is that she has often... Must I? Stella wondered. But she must. The director has often used this metaphor in the little talks we have together here in her office, because we're all part of the Fairmount Manor family. You, Mrs. Warren, the care workers. The director's face lighted. Thank you, Mrs. Ryman. It's nice to know that people are really listening. Stella pushed on. And Theo Longbourn, along with the rest of the residents. Thelma Hu, me, Ireland, Lucille. Because we're family, we all get the same special treatment. Outsiders like the board will never understand. Yes, the warden said, gazing back at Stella with a gaze that was becoming more professional with every moment. Dr. Terry turned to Stella as well. The wood-panelled office walls seemed to recede from the three of them, and Stella knew it was now or never. The moment had arrived, and Stella put her shoulder up against the point that needed tipping and pushed hard. 
am I right in thinking that you've both agreed that Theo will be best kept downstairs in room 74 in the hydrangea corridor? Doctor and director exchanged a look. I'm sorry, Mrs. Ryman. Will you please step outside? I have something private to say to Mrs. Warren. With gentle hands, Dr. Terry steered Stella out of the office door. When it shut behind her, she saw that the window in the door would prevent her from even eavesdropping on the conversation. She moved slowly over to the empty receptionist's desk, pulled out the chair, and sat down in the secretary's place. She had had a desk of her own, a sturdy oak one, with a drawer by her right knee for manila folders and a picture of Junie. Mother, where are you? On the left side front. But she placed the little pile of papers on the secretary's desk before her. She folded her hands on the papers and waited. She expected to hear shouting. She heard nothing. She simply sat still in the outer office, and throughout her wait, she was entirely alone. No care worker passed through. No patient moved slowly by. She had no idea how long a time she waited there. But at last the door opened, and Dr. Terry, pale in his anger and tight-lipped with a satisfaction, stepped out. He looked at Stella and gave a single sharp nod. Then he held two thumbs up. With trembling hands and pounding heart, Stella opened the top drawer of the long-gone secretary's desk, placed the warden's papers in the drawer, and shut it up tight. Chapter 65 The hour was late. In the half-light that glowed in the hydrangea corridor at this time of night, Stella put her hand on the handle of the door to room 74. She hadn't knocked. It was too late at night for a visit. Also, despite Dr. Terry's mute assurance that Theo was to stay downstairs, she wasn't sure she had read the doctor's sharp nod correctly. Perhaps that nod hadn't indicated success at all, but only his acknowledgement of an excellent effort, like a teacher's scrawled, good try, in the margin next to a big blue D. As well, she observed that there was no thin line of light at the bottom of Theo's door. She pushed the handle down and heard the soft snick of the latch. She leaned on the door with one shoulder until the gap grew just wide enough to slip through. She didn't simply enter. She insinuated herself into the room. Once inside, she found that somebody had left the light on in room 74's washroom so that a pie-shaped wedge of light spread across the floor of the room all the way over to the bed. Stella stood and stared at the illuminated linoleum, bolstering her courage to face disappointment. But out of the corner of her eye, she could see that there was something or someone on or in the bed. It might be those same articles of clothing she'd seen earlier in piles upon the coverlet. Or 
It might be Theo himself. But she had not misunderstood the doctor. Theo was safe. He lay on his side, facing her, the covers humped up over his shoulders. As she watched, he shifted in his sleep so that the covers fell off one shoulder, revealing the top of a pair of pajamas striped white against some contrasting color that the cones, or was it the rods, grade six science class seemed very far away, and that the cones or the rods in her eyes couldn't interpret in the low light. In this light, one saw, like cats and dogs see, in grays and black, and I am like a faithful dog drawn to the bedside of but it was no good. She didn't feel like a dog at all. She felt like a tired, elderly lady who ached in various corners of her anatomy. She felt like a woman who wanted to sit down. Every bedroom at Fairmont Manor had a chair for visitors, a chrome and plastic affair that, due to its cheekily contoured seat, was actually very comfortable to sit in. The chrome on the chair in the corner of Theo's room glinted quietly with reflected light from the washroom door. Stella pulled it over with hardly a squeak and sat down at Theo's side. She studied his face. Framed by tousled white hair, his eyes appeared more deeply sunken when shut, his nose bonier, and his mouth made an entreating and not classically attractive oh she smiled pleased that he looked the way he did she was happy that sleep didn't take the years from his face or give him the countenance of an angel something gleamed at the side of his mouth the little drop of drool shining in the night reassured stella enormously she herself had no idea at all how she looked in sleep. She sat back, suddenly not at all certain why she had come into his room only to sit staring at him, all uninvited. How would he feel if he woke up and saw her here? Would he be affronted that she'd seen him in his striped pajamas? Blue. She'd bet anything she had that the stripes were white and blue. She remembered the day he had found her on the stairs and slipped her lost shoe back onto her foot. It occurred to her that she was back in a fairy tale again, not Cinderella, of course. Sleeping Beauty was the original bedtime story, and just now she was the prince, poised at bedside, one kiss away from an awakening. And what harm would it do to give him a little peck? Since she was here, and it was that sort of moment, a peck on the cheek, or even on the edge of his mouth, the top edge away from the drool. But wherever she put it, a kiss seemed a precipitate action. Shaking her head at the thought, she bent down towards the shadowy floor beside Theo's bed, and picked up a lump of cloth lying untidily there. She stood up with it in her hand and then took it over to the light 
spilling out of the washroom door. It was a pair of trousers. The fabric was a neutral tan color, and it had one of those invisible elastic waists they manufactured so expertly at Sears. She stood for a moment, examining the trouser legs, long legs for a long-legged man, where she could just make out the dirty marks from where he had fallen when the car hit him that very morning. The bottom hem of one of the legs had turned back, and she could see the double-stitched hem. Sears was good, but they wouldn't go so far as that. A professional tailor had hemmed those trousers. It was reassuring to know that tailors, with their own fairy tale associations, were still out there taking careful stitches, double hemming, and killing twenty flies, no doubt, with a single blow. She smiled to herself and found that, for the first time in sixty years, she was folding a man's trousers for him. She discovered that she still knew just what to do. She had only been married for a couple of years, so long ago, but her hands were still those of a wife. As her mind was still that of a school librarian and a teacher, and her heart, a wife's heart, a mother's heart, and even a lover's heart. She held the trousers by their bottom hems and folded them sideways along the creases. She smoothed the length of them with her other hand, then approaching the bed again, she hung them over the back of Theo's chair. Silently, she slipped out of his room. Chapter 66 Just before noon the next morning, Stella fidgeted in her seat next to Thelma in Corridor Park. Lunchtime was nearly upon her, and she felt equal parts anticipation and agitation. The source of her anticipation was Theo. The source of her agitation was a certain member of the Greek chorus. Iolanth and Lucille sat side by side, stitching away at the fabric of their own society. But it was Stella's concern for Sally, the nodder, that was making her so uncomfortable. Stella strongly, and even honestly, hoped that Sally would not be heartbroken to find herself without Theo to escort her to lunch. Still, there was a point where pretense devolved into adolescent prevarication. Stella would not keep her special relationship with Theo a secret anymore. She would walk to lunch with her particular friend, Theo, her man friend. She and not the nodder would accompany him to lunch because Stella and Theo enjoyed one another's company. All everybody knows is fair. But how could Stella walk away with Theo and leave the nodder sitting alone with whatever she used for a heart broken? At 82, Stella had evolved past such selfish, selfish behavior. She decided then and there that when Theo came to escort her to lunch, she would ask him to offer one arm to Sally. They would go down to lunch together, and Thelma could hang on to Stella on the other side. The four of them went head down to the dining room, arm in arm in arm. She remembered a chant from her childhood. Two's company, three's a crowd, and four on the sidewalk are not allowed. 
But here Theo came at last, limping along the corridor on his sore leg. He was wearing a sky-blue cardigan and tan trousers. What excellent hair he had! She gazed at him with fondness and the satisfaction that every woman feels when she knows perfectly well that she has obtained the affection of the most attractive man in the place. But he never reached Stella, for Sally the Nodder stood up, walked towards him, and took his arm. She walked Theo right past Stella and off in the direction of the dining room. Stella's jaw hung open. She snapped it shut again before the nodder could see her gaping. She corrected herself before Sally saw her. Stella was trying very hard not to refer to people by their nicknames. But no, at this point in time, Sally was the nodder. And maybe she was even that damned nodder. It seemed to Stella that she had known girls like that all her life. Girls who would walk right up and take any fellow they wished. Their success was rarely due to their looks, but to a particular type of self-confidence that resulted from their inability to sense or even imagine rejection. There had been times at those round linen-draped tables in the dance halls of her youth when she'd be leaning on her elbows, surrounded by the scents of cigarette smoke and perfumed organza netting, chatting to some fellow when one of those girls would walk up and pluck him from the table like a gardenia out of the centerpiece. But there was something Stella knew that those girls never knew, and she'd bet they never learned. Stella smiled at the thought as she watched the nodder walk. What those girls didn't know was that sometimes the fellow, walking off with the girl into a song such as June in January or Mean to Me, sometimes the fellow looked back. Yes, sometimes he turned his head around as far as it would go and gave a lift of the eyebrows at you that could only be interpreted as a promise. All this Stella thought to herself as the nodder strolled with Theo along the corridor towards the dining room. So the question was simple. Would Theo turn his head, run his free hand through his very good hair, and lift his eyebrows at her? Stella sat down at Thelma's side. Across the corridor, Ireland looked up from her stitching. It's the old story, isn't it, dear? Old flames win out. The nodder's chair was empty. But Lucille did the honors, even so. She nodded and then added, I put my money on Sally to win and you to show. But it's a fried hamburger, meat, and onions and macaroni today, if that's any consolation to you. As Stella was imagining picking up a plate of fried hamburger meat and macaroni and tipping it over the heads of all three of the Greek chorus, she felt a tug at her sleeve. Poor Stella, Thelma chuckled. What has Sally got that you don't have? A toth, Thelma. But Stella considered her question well. Theo and the nodder approached the corner of the corridor beyond which no last backward look could be bestowed. 
she said, I've given Sally a terrible behind-her-back nickname. Ah, Thelma said, but how do you know you don't have one of those yourself? Would Theo look back, or would he not? Or would there be a third option here as well? There was. For a wonder, Stella discovered that she didn't want to know whether Theo looked back at her. Not yet. She wanted to find out how he felt about her, of course, but even more than that, she didn't want to spoil the intrigue. She had never been one to turn to the last pages of the book simply to know what happened. Where was the fun in that? Where was the adventure? Therefore, as Theo and Sally moved off, Stella covered her eyes with one hand. She left it there long enough for Theo to lead Sally around the corner and a good ways along towards the dining room. As she waited, she could make out the sound of their shuffling feet, over which was laid a tapping noise, an impatient tapping noise. She uncovered her eyes. Hyalanth and Lucille had set aside their needlework and had risen to their feet. However, Thelma was sitting even more hunched up over her cane than usual. Her feet in their silk slippers like two red birds beneath her chair. With her hands clenching her cane, she raised it two inches off the floor and brought it down with a rap. Another two inches up and another rap. Her face was pouched around her mouth in a grimace. As Ayleth and Lucille shuffled past them on their way to lunch, Stella asked, Is there something I can do for you, Thelma? I'd be glad to take you down to lunch. Thelma brought her cane down with a final whack. Well, it's about time, Stella Ryman. It's about time you asked whether there's anything you can do for me. I've asked before, Stella protested. She was almost certain that this was true. Don't interrupt, Thelma said. It's one of your biggest faults. We're having a perfectly important conversation and then off you go chasing poison pen letters and thieves or else you're running after a man, Stella protested. When people need help, I most certainly... Thelma interrupted. When people need help. What about a friend, Stella Ryman? You tear around helping people and leave your friend in the lurch when you know perfectly well you're needed. Stella blinked. Are we friends? I'm never sure. <laughs> Thelma said. There followed a long pause while rain pounded against the skylight over Stella's head. At last, Thelma said, Well... Are you ready to listen? I am. There's a tale I have to tell you, Thelma said. The timbre of her voice lowered with import. A tale of intrigue, a betrayal, of thievery. Thelma had Stella's attention. As she listened to Thelma's problem, a very interesting thing was happening along the length of her back. All the small, articulated bones of her spine stirred one by one, just slightly, like a stack of children's blocks straightened by a gentle hand. Slowly, she sat up, a little taller, a little stronger. You had something taken by a thief? she asked. She knew better than to add another word. Thelma grunted. By person or persons unknown. There was another very odd sensation taking place, this time in Stella's upper story. It felt like a 
narrowing between her eyes as if her brain was sharpening itself into a kind of a point. Go on, she said. Velma nodded. Setting her chin down on the top of her cane, she stuck out her lower lip. You'd never know it, but when I came to Fairmont Manor, I was a rich woman. All my savings were in a black lacquer Mejong box. Stella turned her face up towards the skylight, but she was not watching the rain. Instead, she saw a shiny black box inlaid with Chinese characters. She saw the light strike the lid as the box opened and imagined with ease the dismay on Thelma's face when she found it empty. Despite her sympathy for Thelma's loss, Stella felt a smile steal across her face. For here was adventure, and here was mystery. The end.